The following sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Concluding our sermon series, God's Answer to the Burning Issues of Today, our sermon today, God's Answer to Human Need. Our text, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself may be set forth in all the simplicity, in all the glory, in all the clarity of the gospel message. And so we ask that thou eclipse thy servant by the glory of his outshining, that no one shall be seen, no one shall be heard, no one shall be felt, save Jesus himself. We ask this for thy dear name's sake. Amen. You turn to the lesson that was read to us a little earlier, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 7, and our verse for consideration this evening is 25. Hebrews 7, 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. This morning we concluded a series in the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, second letter. Tonight I likewise conclude a series in the series entitled God's Answer to the Burning Issues of Today. Over the past weeks we've been considering such themes as God's answer to racial discrimination, God's answer to Vietnam, God's answer to civil disobedience, God's answer to onlookerism, God's answer to lawlessness, God's answer to social unconcern, God's answer to many other problems that have been engaging our attention. And I feel it's right and proper that ultimately we should end on the greatest note the Bible has to present to us. God's answer to human need. God's answer is a perfect Savior. God's answer then to human need. And I know very few chapters in the whole range of Holy Scripture which shuts a man up to God's only answer to human need in Jesus Christ as chapter 7 of the letter to the Hebrews. The context, as you know, there's a wonderful contrast which the writer is drawing between the dying priesthood of Aaron and the ever-living priesthood of Melchizedek. And I suppose in all the range of Scripture once again, there are few passages that deal pulverizing blows at all concepts of humanism, ritualism, ceremonialism, and priestism, as does this chapter. The Holy Spirit, through the writer to the Hebrews, lifts the Savior up and makes him very high and focuses all attention on him so that when all others have been spoken of, we're coming face to face, he said, with the only one who can save to the uttermost those that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I can understand why Christian people across the world get very annoyed and provoked when people attempt to set aside our Lord Jesus Christ and compare him, as it were, with Confucius or Buddha or any of the other prophets who'd be named down through the centuries. This is sacrilege. This is blasphemy. For he is utterly and completely incomparable. The incomparable Christ. The perfect Savior. God's final answer to human need. 
And tonight I want to take three aspects of this perfection. First, the perfection of his saving authority. Secondly, the perfection of his saving ability. And thirdly, the perfection of his saving activity. The perfect Savior. God's answer to human need. First of all, then, the perfection of his saving authority. Wherefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. Why? For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Made higher than the heavens. I think this is a wonderful interpretation of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before anyone has authority to do a saving work, he must demonstrate his ability to do so in the sense in which, and his authority to do so in the sense in which, he has never sinned. I cannot save you, for I have to die for my own sins. You cannot save me, for you have to die for your own sins. For the scripture says, the soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin, death, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is no human being who's ever walked this earth who hasn't sinned. From Adam right the way down, save this one, this incomparable one, this perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Herein then is the authority he has to save a human race in all the sinlessness and spotlessness of his perfect person. He stands as the only one who's an answer to the entire human race and therefore to the entire human need, his authority to save. Notice the perfection of this person Godward. Says the scripture, he was an high priest. He has become a high priest who is holy. Stop there for a moment. There's his perfection, Godward, holy. There are two words in the New Testament used for our English holy, and this one means conformity with that which is right, conformity with that which is just and righteous. Conformity, if you please, with God's law. Here is one who never broke God's law. In prophetic language, we hear him saying in that glorious psalm, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. He was holy, and he came to fulfill God's holy law, God's holy will, and with undeviating obedience to his Father's will, he pursued his pathway from the cradle to the cross. And twice over, at strategic points in his life, God opened heaven and declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The first occasion flung back, as it were, the curtain of his private life. From a boy of twelve through until thirty years of age, a young man, nothing is exposed to us in Holy Scripture concerning that hidden life. Nothing at all. Save for that one flower thrown over the wall of his boyhood days, I repeat, nothing is known of our wonderful Savior. Yet as he stands on the banks of that Jordan River and presents himself to his Father and to a world he's about to redeem, God broke through from heaven and declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom is all my pleasure, in whom I find my delight, his perfection, Godward. Then the years rolled by, and at the very height and zenith of his ministry, he stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it today. And there, having displayed his power and authority over sin, over disease, over the elements, over men, 
He stood upon that mountain, presented himself to his father, and God broke through from heaven again and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He's the only voice. He's the only word. He's my last word to a world of desperate need. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past by the prophets, through the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. God's final word to a world of human need. His perfection, Godward, holy, holy. A priest after the order of Melchizedek, holy. His perfection, Godward. But the text goes on to say, for such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless. That's his perfection, manward. The word harmless there means without guile, without guile. Not only was he perfect Godward, but he was perfect manward. And as he followed the course that God had mapped out for him, men looked upon him and could see nothing but perfection in him. I cannot, if you consider his friends, his foes, or the fiends who hounded him to his death. His own disciples could look upon him and voice their opinion from the lips of that great man, Peter, who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Once again, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter, on one occasion, saw one flash of the deity of our Lord breaking through that humanity, and he cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. His friends recognized his perfection. But more than his friends, his foes did. Judas, one of the disciples, so-called, yet the son of perdition and a traitor to his heart, declared as he flung the money down on the temple steps, I, he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, looking to the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, could say to the crowd, This man, I have weighed in the balances of justice and I find no cause of death in him. And even his wife had to send him a message saying, Have thou nothing to do with this just man? For I have suffered many things in a dream because of him. Even the man who railed on him to start with, on the cross with his colleague and confederate in sin and evil, had to say, Shut your mouth, as one version has it. We, indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man, hath done nothing amiss, nothing amiss. What had the demons to say concerning him? The fiends, whatever, watching for that chink in the armor, that opportunity to expose him. You remember how they cried out, touch us not, molest us not, as the word is, thou art the holy one. Thou art the holy one. He was holy, his perfection Godward. Harmless, his perfection manward. Undefiled. His perfection self-ward. The Lord Jesus Christ was the only man here upon earth who could look into the faces of men and women who are watching him every day and say to them, Which of you convinceth me of sin? Which of you convinceth me of sin? The devil cometh and hath nothing in me. Strauss, the infidel, had to declare, Jesus Christ was the only man who had a conscience unclouded by sin. When we come to the New Testament, we read, first of all, Paul who says, In him is no sin. He did no sin. There was no guile in his mouth. He was harmless, undefiled, undefiled. 
the supreme solitariness of our Lord Jesus Christ is bound up in this fact that he was utterly holy, harmless, undefined, separate from sinners. Though he ate with them, though he sat down to share their problems, though he was known as the friend of sinners, yet he was utterly separate from them. And there was a mark and a distinction about his life which set him off, contrasted him from all the sinners around him. No wonder Carlyle, the great literalist, once said this. He said, if Shakespeare were to walk into this room, we'd rise and give him respect and do him honor. But he said, if Jesus Christ were to walk into this room, we would fall down at his feet prostrate to kiss the hem of his garment. The authority for saving men and women. The perfection of his saving authority. Wherein is this authority? I'll tell you, my friend, that he's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And as one separate from sinners, he and only he has the authority to save sinners. And that can't be said of anyone else the universe has ever known. But let's move on. Not only have we here the perfection of his saving authority, we have here the perfection of his saving ability. And this great text just underscores it gloriously. Wherefore he is able also to save to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. We've looked at the perfection of his saving authority. Think with me for a moment of the perfection of his saving ability. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost. Think of the effectiveness of that saving ability. He is able to save to the uttermost. That word uttermost occurs only twice in the whole of the New Testament in this particular form. Once here and once in Luke chapter 13 and verse 11 where we read of the woman who was bent double and in no wise could raise herself up under satanic influence in some strange manner that's not described to us, she had become a prisoner of Satan for some 18 years and was bent over double, just like a hairpin, a pitiable sight. And our Lord Jesus said it was because of the devil. And Luke, the doctor, describing the case, says she could in no why lift herself up. That phrase, in no wise, in our English, is the one Greek word, uttermost. Yet with one glorious delivering word, one glorious delivering word, Jesus straightened it out in a stroke. One glorious command. The effectiveness of his saving ability. He is able to save to the uttermost. And I wonder how many here are bent double in sin. It may be the sin in the area of sex. It may be sin in the area of thoughts. It may be sin in the area of jealousy. It may be sin in the area of envy. It may be sin in the area of drugs. It may be sin in the area of habits. It may be sin in the area of gluttony. It may be sin in the area of moodiness. It may be sin in the area of an unclean tongue. I cannot what it is, but you're bent double. You can't raise yourself up. You try again and again to be erect, to stand pure and honest and straight, and you've never been able to do it. He can do it with one glorious word of saving ability. The effectiveness of his saving ability. I care not who you are, sir. I care not who you are, madam. I care not who you are, young person. One thing I know is that you're a sinner. That's absolutely clear. What more is this? 
Jesus said, whosoever committeth sin is the slave of sin. And it's only a matter of degree as to how you're going to be bound, how you're going to be shackled. And I'm telling you, as you advance without Christ and without his grace, so the struggle's going to become harder and harder and harder until one day you too will be bent double. But I want to tell you tonight, he is able to save to the uttermost the effectiveness of his saving ability. And glory to God, that word save carries the whole sweep of the three tenses of salvation. Saved not only from the penalty of sin, saved not only from the power of sin, but one day gloriously saved from the very presence of sin. As Frances Ridley Havergill illustrates it so beautifully in one of her little books, salvation isn't a matter of just diving into the water and dragging out a man who's drowning, for you can bring him onto the beach. You've got him out of the water, but what drowns a man is not the water outside of him, it's the water inside of him. There he is on the beach. He's been saved out of the water, but there he lies, helpless, hardly breathing. Salvation is not only deliverance from, it's deliverance in the situation. Not only from the sea, but deliverance in the situation in which he now finds himself. The water has to be taken out of him. This is the glorious aspect of salvation by which we're sanctified progressively, even unto the day of consummation. And then one day, one day he stands on his feet well again and enters into the fullness of that for which he was designed. That's the glory of our salvation. Saved from, saved in, saved to the effectiveness of his saving ability. Hallelujah, what a savior. Glory to God. But not only the effectiveness of his saving ability, I want you to notice the exclusiveness of his saving ability. Ah, yes, there's something exclusive here. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. What and who? that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Yes, there's an exclusiveness about this saving ability. True, true, it's effective, but it's exclusive. Exclusive only for those who come to God by him. Only for those who come to God by him. You know, my friend, sitting there passively in that seat tonight won't save you. Imagining that you're going to drift fortuitously into the kingdom of God one of these Sunday nights won't save you. While the Bible teaches quite conclusively and absolutely that we're saved by grace and that none of ourselves it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Though we're told in the Bible that we're saved by the mercy of God, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Yet I want to tell you, my friend, you're never going to be saved unless you come. Unless you come. This salvation is exclusive for those who come to God by him. The Bible teaches that there are only two ways in which you can come. That is to say, there is only one way seen in a twofold sense in which you can come. Were to come in repentance, were to come in faith. And that is clearly stamped in Scripture. The phrase I'm using is from the very Acts of the Apostles. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, or if you prefer, we're to come repentantly, and secondly, we're to come believingly. We're to come repentantly. The old prophet Isaiah puts it, Come, come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as snow. Let me point out, Come, let us reason. 
Repentance is essentially an intellectual revolution. It's a change of mind. It's a right about turn in the area of the intellect. My mind, my mind affects my heart. Yes, it starts with as a man thinketh, so is he. An intellectual revolution. Come, let us reason together. We're not committing intellectual suicide. We're not, we're not making this a matter of just emotional upheaval or even volitional pressure. It's a matter of the mind, the mind, the reasonableness of it. Here is a Christ who is demonstrated above the heavens as being the only one authorized to save men and women. No one has emerged on this globe throughout the centuries who is qualified to save men and women. His ability and effectiveness to save is beyond dispute. Now then, now then, says the gospel, come, come, come now. Let us reason, says the Lord, though your sins be red like crimson, they shall be as snow, though they be Red like crimson, that dark dyed, impossible color to eradicate. It will be eradicated. It'll be cleansed out. And God can do it. God can do it in Jesus Christ. All the reasonableness of God being able to do the impossible, since he is God, reason it out, sink it out. Come repentantly, come repentantly. That change of mind leads to a change of heart and will and life. A right about turn. Come repentantly. Quit the past. Be done with all that's occupied your attention up until now. Set your mind on God. Blow up the bridges of retreat and reservation and come repentantly to God by him. But there's something more than come, coming believingly. It's this matter of receiving him. Not only repentance and faith, which involves believing, but receiving. Not only coming believingly in the committed sense, Lord, I come to thee, I launch out in faith upon thee, I trust thee for thy cleansing blood, I trust thee for thy risen life, I trust thee for all there is of salvation for me in thee. But Lord, more than that, I come receivingly. I come not only to believe, but to receive. O thou Son of God, made higher than the heavens, thou Holy One, thou Harmless One, Thou undefiled one, thou separate one from all sinners, become my savior, be my savior. Nath, I receive thee. Are you prepared to do that, my friend? That's God's answer to human need. That's God's answer to human need. And the solidarity of the human race is exemplified in this great truth of the solidarity of human sin. And until sin is dealt with, we needn't talk about politics. We needn't talk about economics. We needn't talk about environments. We needn't talk about education. First of all, there, at the heart of things, sin. So we see the perfection of his saving authority, his perfection Godward, manward, selfward. The perfection of his saving ability, a savingness which is effective, effective. He can straighten you out with one glorious saving word, the exclusiveness of his saving ability. It's for those who come, those who come. Oh, that from your heart tonight may be breathed that prayer, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Will you come repentantly? Will you come believingly? Will you come receivingly? Will you appropriate by faith his saving ability? But one other glorious thought, and I'm done. We have here not only the perfection of his saving authority, 
the perfection of his saving ability, but also the perfection of his saving activity. Wherefore he is able to save to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth, ever liveth, to make intercession for them. The Lord Jesus Christ stands on resurrection ground, and he declares, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He ever liveth. And why does he live? He lives to intercede. He lives to intercede. And in this intercessory priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have his present saving activity, a truth not often preached about, a truth very little known in terms of experience, but a glorious truth. He is my high priest. There at the throne, he advocates for me. He intercedes for me. He is my advocate. And the measure of his saving activity now is this priestly character of his glorious work. And I see it in three ways. As my intercessor in his saving activity, he represents my person. He represents my person. The whole chapter is on his priesthood. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yes, he stands there before the Father to represent me. And just as Aaron, just as Aaron, from one aspect of the priesthood, represents the people of the children of Israel, and has those names engraved upon those stones that hang on his breast, those stones that are placed upon his shoulder, so my blessed Savior represents me, my very person, before the presence of God. Yes, my name is written not only upon his heart, not only carried on the strong shoulders of my priest, but engraved in the palms of his hands is the glorious figurative language that describes it. I don't care how often the devil may accuse me, and he is the accuser of the brethren, and how often he would try to accuse me and to bring me into the dust of defeat. But my Savior is there to advocate for me. Yes, he represents my person. And in Jesus Christ, I'm represented constantly before the Father's throne. But not only is he there interceding to represent my person, he's there, listen carefully, to relieve my problems. He's there to relieve my problems, for the writer to the Hebrew has picked up his thought from chapter 4, where he says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast the profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, what a glorious fact! And having been tempted, we're told in the other passage, he's able now to succor them, to succor them, to relieve them who are tempted and tested. Dear young fellow, young woman here, Boys and girls, men and women, there is no problem, there is no testing, there is no trial that you'll find in that tough office, that hostile school, that impossible situation in which you found yourself. I'm telling you, there's no problem that you can face there that he cannot relieve. Why? Because there's no situation on earth. There is no temptation that has accosted man here upon earth that he hasn't himself experienced and conquered. And because he has, he is able to succor them also that are tempted. He stands there as intercessor not only to represent me, my person, but to relieve me, my problem. I love to hear Alan Redpath, my dear friend and colleague, 
preach on the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. He's got a great message on that theme. And he pictures our Savior there after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and studying deeply into God's holy word, especially the book of Deuteronomy, and how the devil attacks him at every level of his life. And in that threefold temptation encompasses every temptation that any man could ever experience. But Jesus felt it in the intensity that you and I will never feel temptation. Why? Because most of us are numbed by our sinfulness. The very fact that we're sinners means that most of our beings are insensitive. We're numbed. We've been cauterized by the very fact of sin in our lives. But with all the intensity that no one can ever describe, Satan attacked his holy manhood. And three times, against the line of the spirit, against the line of the soul, against the line of the body, the devil came up against him with all the forcefulness of hell. Jesus stood, and Alan Redpath imagines him saying, Satan, Satan, as son of God, I could pulverize you. As son of God, I could consign you to the bottomless pit long before your time. As son of God, I have authority to annihilate you. But one day I'm going to need you as son of God. One day I'm going to judge you as you deserve, the son of God. But now I'm going to beat you as I'm doing. And he beat him. And that's the priest we have in heaven. That's the priest we have in heaven. A priest who is touched with every feeling of our infirmities, having been tested at all points, like as we are yet without sin. Therefore, he is able to suck, to relieve any young man, any young man. And there is no temptation which is common to man, which can strike at your life without a way of escape. And hallelujah, that way of escape is Jesus, is Jesus. He stands there in this saving activity of his to represent my person, to relieve my problem, but finally, to relay my prayers. Oh, to relay my prayers. That's why that verse I read goes right on to say, Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, the intercessory ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ stands for representation. The ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as intercessor stands for advocacy, relieving problems, but it also stands, listen carefully, for relaying our prayers. How often I kneel and I find myself lost for words. How often I stumble over the syllables of prayer. How often I long that I might be taught more deeply in the school of prayer. How often I don't know what to pray for as I ought. How often my infirmities lock my jaws and even confine my thoughts. How often I can't even utter them. There are only groanings which cannot be uttered. But thank God, thank God, the paraclete, the holy paraclete within me helps my infirmities and prays in me the mind of God. And as those prayers wing themselves by faith and love to the Father's throne, the Savior receives them first, purifies them, adjusts them, reduces them to what is God's will, and then presents them, relays them to heaven itself. The prayer goes up and power comes down. My blessed Savior, my holy priest, in the perfection of his saving activity. Beloved, we've talked about all the issues I think this country knows about. Vietnam, violence, war, social concern, social awareness, juvenile delinquency, our problem in the intellectual world of today, the philosophies of the modern age. But when we've said everything and done everything, there is no solution outside of Jesus. He is God's answer to human need. 
in all the perfection of his saving authority, in all the perfection of his saving ability, in all the perfection of his saving activity, I offer you Jesus tonight. Will you receive him? Will you come repentantly, believingly, and then with open heart, like Zacchaeus of old? Will you receive him gladly? It's Jesus himself you need. Let us pray. He who died on Calvary's cross and shed his precious blood, he who rose from the dead the third day and ascended to heaven, he who represents us in his priestly intercessory activity at the throne of grace, is the one who by his Spirit presents himself to every man and woman, every young person in this place tonight. And I want to tell you, my friend, there is no other answer to human need than Jesus. That's where men must start. That's where men must conclude. All other issues are secondary. Important, but secondary. Jesus Christ came not to reform, primarily. He came not just to teach, primarily. He came not to invent a theology, primarily. He came not even to heal, primarily. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Will you let him save you? Will you trust him to save you? Will you come repentantly, believingly, Blessed Lord, we thank Thee for the sense of Thy presence, the grip of Thy spirit, simplicity of Thy message. We cry to Thee that hungry hearts here tonight, bent over by sin, crooked and shackled, defeated, may come to Jesus and find in Him authority, ability and activity to save. Indeed, with the hymnus, we pray again that Thy salvation shall visit every trembling heart. Seal with Thy Holy Spirit the ministry of music, of testimony, and of preaching. Get glory to thy name in the harvest of tonight. We ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.